Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again. Thanks for being here. If you're just joining us this morning, we've been in a sermon series where we've been looking at the book of Acts and how Acts is instructive as we as a community reflect on the brokenness that we see in our world, particularly through the the lenses of racism and prejudice and injustice. It's hard for any church to have these conversations. It's hard for disciples of Jesus to have these conversations. If you have a pulse, it's hard to have these conversations. So know that we enter into this with a lot of grace and with a lot of understanding for one another. Uh, It has been uh, a huge blessing and a huge challenge uh, every week to look at these scriptures and to try to bring the gospel to bear as it speaks to each of our hearts around this subject. One of the reasons I picked that scripture for us to be read this morning is I wanted us to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. I want us to be reminded that there isn't some target on the other side of this sermon series and all the ministries that we have going on. The target is not, let us be more moral people. The target is, let us be people who understand how the gospel speaks to this particular challenge, this sin of racism that is facing our world. Today's sermon is about the theme of obedience. Can you say that word with me? Obedience. Now, we're going to talk about this term, a catalytic event, in just a moment, but the theme is obedience. Now, depending on how you grew up, obedience might be a really good word, or it might be a word that you're not very fond of. If you, grew up in a more, if you grew up in a more traditional setting, traditional culture, obedience was really, really important. It was super important in the household that I grew up in. And obedience can be used in different ways. It's kind of a double-edged sword. As an adult, all of us have to figure out what does obedience look like, because we're all going to be obedient to something. We're going to be obedient to the expectations that are placed on us by our employer. This is where post-modernity breaks down, like, whatever you believe is true is true for you. Well, try that when your boss tells you to go do something. Like, you go do what your boss tells you to go do, right? There's a limit to how much we are willing to obey as well. Some of you have had to wrestle, grapple with your employer and the challenges that it faces you to say like, well, I don't really want to do that, and yet my employer is telling me to do this. That's a common theme and thread where we live. But make no mistake that obedience to Jesus Christ is inherent to transformation. If we want to be carried forward in the path that the Holy Spirit's carrying us on, we have to be obedient. We'll wrestle with it, we'll struggle with it because we're human beings, because we're breathing, because we're alive. And let me tell you this as well, on the east side, no one is gonna tell you to be obedient to Jesus Christ outside the church. No one is gonna tell you to align your life with his values and his standards. What you will be told, what I will be told, is to align yourself with that which is comfortable, with that which is convenient, and that which is the most expeditious, the most efficient, right? There is nothing efficient about obedience to Jesus Christ. And I say this primarily thinking about disciples of Christ. And this sermon series has really been kind of a disciples-focused one. I think it's a little less um, accessible for people outside the faith in some ways. But make no mistake that our goal today is to have a clear sense of what it means to be obedient through the lens of this term called a catalytic event. Not my term, a term from a scholar that we'll talk about in a little while, but we're going to get into this as we look at Acts chapter 10, and I'm going to give us an outline. We'll come back to that as we talk through today. There's two main characters in today's text, so we need to get into what's going on with both of them. There's Peter's story and Cornelius' story. We're going to do an overview of the plot, if you will, of Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 10. That's where we're going to be. We're going to talk about catalytic events, plural, because there's several of them in the text. And then we're going to talk about obedience and new life. Now, five-point outline, somebody's thinking like, oh boy, buckle up, it's going to be a while. These are short, trust me. 
and we will have time for our discussions. Kids, I invite you to take notes. I invite you to color and think about how God might be speaking to you in this moment. He doesn't just speak to grown-ups, amen? He speaks to all of us, so let us be mindful of that. First, we're going to talk about Peter. Peter is one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. I love Peter. Peter, if I were to boil down three traits that I think are essential to understanding who Peter is, it's these three. He's called, he's obedient, and he's restored. I'm just going to skim over these scriptures, but I want you to think about them with me. Maybe write these down to go look at later on in your week. Peter is called. He is a disciple of Jesus Christ who Jesus met and said, come and join me on this journey. That's what happens in Matthew chapter 4. Peter's at work. He's fishing. He's with his brother, Andrew. And Jesus comes to him and said, join me and I will make you fishers of men. He's called. Every one of you in this room was called here today. You didn't just show up here by accident. You also share this trait with Peter and that you are called. Next one is that Peter's obedient. This is one of our themes today, and this is where we'll take a look at our first artwork. This is called The Calling of Saints Peter and Andrew by Edward McKnight Coffer. It's from 1944. You can find it at the Cooper Hewitt Museum. It's a Smithsonian Museum in New York City. Didn't know there was a Smithsonian Museum in New York City. I'll have to check it out next time I'm there. But it's a charcoal drawing of, I think, one of the most important moments in all of Scripture, especially for understanding Peter. So there's two figures here in a boat. They are fishing in the way of the ancient Near East, which is with nets. Around them are several other figures. It almost looks like there's a church in the background. Like, that's kind of an interesting sort of like juxtaposition here. And they are pulling up fish. It looks like goldfish crackers, right, kids? But those are actually fish that they're pulling in. And this draws from Luke 5 when Jesus encounters the disciples and he says to them, hey, you've been fishing all night. You haven't caught anything Try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. And this is ridiculous at so many different levels. As you can tell in this image, the nets that were used in the time of the ancient Near East, they were not transparent fishing wire like what commercial fishermen use today. They were opaque ropes. So you didn't go fishing during the day, you went fishing at night because the fish would swim away from your net. Jesus comes to them in the daytime and says, throw your net overboard, try one more time. Jesus, by the way, who was known as a carpenter, not as a fisherman, so it'd be like some, someone coming up to you at work and saying, hey, Tyler, redo that spreadsheet. I, I've never used a spreadsheet in my life, but like redo that thing. Trust me. And you're kind of going, what in the world? Like, why would you tell me what to do? Jesus does this, and Peter says these words, and if you want to write these down, I think these words should continuously change the lives of disciples. Peter says this, if you say so, I will. Say that with me. If you say so, I will. How does it feel when you say that? Because that's a statement of obedience. If you say so, I will. This makes no sense, Jesus. Makes no sense for me to throw my net over this side. We've been fishing all night. I'm exhausted. It makes no sense for us to be talking about racism in the church. But if you say so, I will. And what Peter says is, I'm no longer in charge of my life. I don't have my hand on the steering wheel anymore. I am participating in the work of Christ, but I am no longer in charge of my life. If Jesus says so, his disciples do it. So Peter exemplifies obedience in this moment. The last thing is that Peter is restored. In John chapter 21, he has blown it in every way possible. If you want to look at a catastrophic failure in the Bible, look no further than Peter. But in John 21, Jesus, who has been resurrected, returns and says, don't forget about Peter. Make sure he's on the team. Don't let him opt himself out because of his guilt and shame over how he abandoned me. Keep him involved. 
And Peter becomes one of the leaders in the church, not because he earned it, but precisely because of the opposite, because he didn't deserve it, and God in his grace rescued him through Jesus Christ. That's a sketch of who Peter is. Now, there's a companion in Acts chapter 10 who, unlike Peter, we don't hear about in any other part of the Bible. Peter comes up all throughout the New Testament. He's an amazing figure. This other person that we need to talk about only shows up in Acts chapter 10. His name's Cornelius, and he's a soldier. This is a painting called uh, Vision of Cornelius the Centurion by a Dutch painter named Gerbrand von Eichhout. And I want to just highlight this for just a moment. I didn't really want to put this up here for a minute because the angel doesn't look very angelic. <laughs> it's kind of dark. Like there's dark clouds around this person. Their skin is sort of pale. But when I thought about it in contrast to Cornelius, this soldier, this fighter, this warrior, it made more sense. If we have an encounter with an angelic being, it's that person, that angel, is not going to look like us. It's going to look different. It's going to be otherworldly. If you notice, the artist is very intentional about depicting a soldier in his armor. You can see his armor on his helmet, on his shoulder pad. And then down here, he's laid down a weapon. He's surrendered to this angel. He's listening. That is something that Cornelius and Peter have in common, is that they're both obedient. Don't be surprised when God calls you to be obedient with someone else who is choosing to be obedient as well. He pulls people together who are choosing to be obedient to him. That's the beauty of the church. Now, who is Cornelius? We learn a little bit about him in Acts chapter 10. He's a soldier, a centurion. That term was a military term referring to how many men, soldiers that he oversaw, about 100. His regiment was known as the Italian cohort. I kind of think of that like the 101st Airborne, like a division of the military that was renowned for a particular reason. Now, the Italian cohort is, points towards something interesting as well. Cornelius is not a native of the ancient Near East. We might refer to his racial ethnic background as he comes from more of a minority status. Here's why. In the ancient Near East, you had Jews, you had Gentiles, you had people who were born and raised around there. If you know people from Middle Eastern countries, that's their background. That's very different than someone who's from Italy. My mother's side of the family is Italian. Italians and people from the Middle East look different, do they not? So in this scenario, when we're talking about race, we need to identify the fact that this Roman soldier is Italian, and he is going to have a conversation with someone who is not from the same cultural background as him. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He is also a soldier with a purpose. According to one of the commentaries I read this week, soldiers like Cornelius, they had a deal. The deal was this. If you served in the Roman military, even though you hadn't been born into Roman citizenship, you could earn citizenship over a time of service in the military. So he's motivated. He is actually not going to be the first person to lay down arms and take up the cause of Christ because he wants to achieve the goal of Roman citizenship. And yet, the call of the gospel moves him in a different direction. The scripture tells us that he was devoted to prayer, that he would give generously to people who were in need, that he was well regarded by the men that he led in his division. He was obedient. Fascinating that God would work out his obedience through someone that, as far as we know, doesn't even claim Jesus Christ as Lord yet. Yet. God can be at work in the people in your life and in my life who don't claim him as Lord. He can be at work. Now, let's talk about the plot. 
We're going to go through Acts 10 very quickly. I would encourage you to read through it on your own uh, during the week, kind of use it as your devotional maybe. But this is kind of the sketch of it. As Ryan set this up for us, Pentecost has happened, Jesus has been resurrected, the church has formed together, and the church is wrestling with this idea of what, is it, what does it take to follow Jesus Christ? If the church is going to be this ministry and this mission about following Christ, what are the requirements for that? And there was a group of people in the church, Peter was one of them, who said, in order to follow Jesus Christ, you actually need to become a Jew. If you're a Gentile, you need to go through a process, take on the identity of a Jewish person, then you can be adopted as a Christian. Now, this is kind of funny to me because I remember Jesus saying something like, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anyone else remember that? All nations, not all Jewish nations, all nations. Apparently, Peter and his friends forgot this. And let us be reminded, friends, that even though I love the church, we love the church, the church can make mistakes. This was a mistake to put barriers to Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll hear about that next week when we talk about Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. So there's this controversy, and Peter receives a vision from God that says, look, let's settle this. Three different times, God presents a vision to Peter of bring the Gentiles into the family of faith. And you can kind of read through that on your own in Acts chapter 10. Then Cornelius, at the same time, gets a vision that he needs to go find this guy named Peter. Doesn't know Peter, never met him before, but God says to Cornelius, go find this guy, Peter, here's where you can find him. Cornelius makes the first move, and he sends a group of his soldiers to go meet Peter. Now, if you're Peter, and a group of heavily armed Roman soldiers show up at your house, and they want to talk to you, which closet do you hide in? (laughs) Like, this is a little scary and intimidating, and yet, because of the vision that God gave to Peter, Peter says, okay. I need to have this conversation. That will become one of the catalytic events that we talk about in a little while. Peter goes, he meets Cornelius. Other catalytic events follow. Cornelius, uh, Peter gives the sermon that Ryan read for us. Everyone in Cornelius' house is baptized. It's a happy ending. It's wonderful. But there's more to the story. Just because Peter is obedient to God, just because Cornelius is obedient to God, just because you and I may say, I'm trying to be obedient to God, it does not mean that life will be less complicated. In fact, it probably means the opposite. Obedience to Jesus Christ is going to cost you something, church. It probably already has, if you think about it. Now, let's talk about this idea of a catalytic event. I told you this is not my term. This is a term from a scholar. When I learned this term, reading this book from this person that I'll mention, it was a helpful tool for me in thinking about what does it mean to present the gospel and to be a Christ-centered church in the midst of a time when racism is literally tearing our world apart. How do we step into this faithfully? This is a tool that's been helpful to me that I would offer to you in the context of our passage today that I think will be helpful. This is Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. She is a professor at Seattle Pacific University. She's also a pastor at Quest Church. She is a nationally renowned speaker and consultant. Her work, her academic work, is helping churches on what she calls the Roadmap to Reconciliation. That's the name of her book. Helping churches figure out how do we, with our unique theology and our unique approach to doing ministry, how do we step into this work? How do we have these conversations? I guarantee you, Dr. Brenda has worked with churches who are far more progressive theologically and far more conservative theologically, and she has a gift for helping people get on the same page. In her book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, she presents this term of a catalytic event, and here's how she defines it. 
Catalytic events are often painful, but necessary experiences that happen to individuals and organizations and serve to jumpstart the reconciliation process. If you're familiar with family systems theory, a similar term would be a nodal event. It's an event by which there's kind of a line of demarcation. You had your life before that event and you have your life after that event. And in this particular instance, a catalytic event, like the name suggests from chemistry, a catalyst, it forms and moves and animates and sort of foments a group of people toward a type of change that is honoring to Christ. Maybe you can think of a catalytic event that you've had with someone from another race, with a group of people that you didn't know, that you weren't familiar with. Maybe you can think of an example of a catalytic event that you saw someone else go through. I'm going to share one that I went through, and it'll seem at the top like it's kind of inside baseball, but there's definitely a part that brings a little bit of bite. Many of you know that we've enjoyed a friendship with Paradise Baptist Church for going on six years now. They're an amazing group of people. Paradise is a small, historically African-American congregation located in South Seattle. They're right on the corner of Henderson Street and MLK. If you ever find yourself down there, say hi. They're great people. We got connected to them basically just through the hand of God. Like, (laughs) there's no other way to explain our connection to Paradise than the fact that God wanted that to happen. And many of you were there for the earliest days of that. So before COVID, our congregation would journey down to worship with Paradise at their church twice a year, and they would come up and worship with us. And we had beautiful, beautiful services of worship. One of the things that I lament most is how COVID kind of crushed that for the last couple of years, and we're hoping to sort of renew that time of worship together soon. Their pastor is a gentleman named Booker Kindred. He has been there 25 years. He's been a wonderful friend and mentor to me. And so when we do our services together, I will preach, or Pastor Kindred will preach, and we'll share duties of leading worship together. He is always incredibly gracious to me and just such a dear friend. And so in one of our last worship services before COVID, we were gathered in Paradise's Sanctuary. Paradise's Sanctuary is about this size. It's about the size of half of our sanctuary. There's about 50 people in there. And Pastor Kindred and I are up in front, and we're serving communion together. And I am so honored any time we get to serve communion as a church, but I'm especially honored when Pastor Kindred invited me to do that. And so what they use is similar to what we use, these little communion packets with the bread and the juice in there. And so people come forward, they receive the elements, then they go back to their seats and we celebrate communion together. And at the end of the handing out of the elements, Pastor Kindred just says, hey, I want to make sure before we continue in worship, does anyone still need communion elements? And I was standing on the right of the table, Pastor Kendrick was standing on the left, and over to my right was Megan Krantz, our worship director, my dear colleague, and she raised her hand and said, oh, I haven't received communion elements yet. And without thinking, I reached behind me to the basket, picked up one of these, walked over about 10, 15 feet away from Megan, and I tossed it to her. Just a little soft throw. She caught it there was a hush that fell over the room, like it did just now. There was a shudder, you might say. Now, some of you that grew up in like very kind of you know, low church, like what's the big deal about that? Maybe you're a little bit confused. And I was not even aware of what had happened. In the black church, communion is not something that you joke around about. It's very serious. It's very reverential. And when I took that communion element, and I tossed it to my colleague, 
I showed a level of disrespect to the communion table that I could never have imagined. It goes against all my training, against all, it goes against all my theological convictions, and it was incredibly offensive to our friends at Paradise. Huge mistake on my part. I was clueless, and so we finished the worship service. I could tell something was a little bit off, but I didn't want to press into it with Pastor Kinder, and I just thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, we'll get into it another time. And so we all go home, and then the very next day, Pastor Kinder called me, and he said, hey, I wanted to just talk to you about the worship service yesterday. I said, okay. And he said, I am so embarrassed at what you did. I cannot believe that you took communion so casually. Do you even know what communion is about? Do you know how important it is to our church? I'm stunned that you could treat it as casually as you did. Every single critique that he had was totally fair. 100%. And I apologized to him over the phone. I said that was absolutely not my intent. I'm really, really sorry. I offered to write a letter to the congregation which he was gracious to receive. And then I also offered to personally apologize to the congregation the next time that I could see them. And he said, well, they're going to need some time before they're ready to see you again. So we'll talk. And I got to tell you guys, it was gut-wrenching for me. It was one of the most painful experiences I've had in ministry. I was actually embarrassed to tell people about it afterwards. As I was writing this this week, I'm like, Phew, here we go, it's going to be on the internet. I shared this story with a couple of our leaders, and one particularly wise leader sat me down and said, hey, I know there's the whole worship element of this, I know you offended a pastor friend of yours, can I just press you a little bit and say there was something else in that exchange? And I said, yeah, tell me about that. And this person... It, Basically, what this person helped me see is there were dynamics of my power as a white man in that setting that I was not aware of, and that I misused who I was in that moment. I was blind to, because of my race and my background, I was blind to how offensive that was. So it wasn't just theologically, like, yeah, don't treat communion elements like that. It's this sense of, like, as a person... I was not aware of how my presence shifts things in a room like that and how I could have been such a better steward of that, how I could have been more sensitive to my friends. And don't hear me say that I'm repudiating my identity. Hear me say, I missed the mark, big time. And I knew one aspect of it, but I needed a friend from this church who was kind enough and gracious enough to pull me aside and explain this to me to help me understand some of the other dynamics that were at work there that were even more difficult. And so that's been a part of the ongoing processing and learning that I've done with Pastor Kindred ever since. He was incredibly gracious to me. If you've never read Matthew 18, read it and think about what Pastor Kindred did. He did exactly what Matthew 18 tells us to do. Go to the person that you're in conflict with and have a conversation. He didn't get on Twitter. He didn't start calling me names behind my back. He called me directly. And that's what I said to Paradise Baptist Church when I was able to personally apologize to them. I said, look, your pastor followed Matthew 18. How good is that? It didn't feel good to me, but how good is that that we as leaders in the church can take that seriously? That, for me, has become a catalytic event because it's helped reframe how I think about who I am in the world, who I am as a pastor, how I carry myself in ministry. It may seem minor to you. It was not minor to me. 
It was not minor to the people of Paradise Baptist Church. Our relationship with them, I think, is better and stronger in part through that failure. And so what I want to ask as we kind of turn our attention now to obedience and where do we see catalytic events in the text, have you had an experience like that? where you just miss the mark. And I'm saying this predominantly to white people. This can happen to anybody, but we're a predominantly white congregation. This is something that God has kind of used to convict and challenge me as well. How do we look at catalytic events and not tell ourselves, oh, I just failed? If all I did was look at that moment with Pastor Kindred and tell myself, oh, I just failed, what a loss. What if I hadn't taken his call? What if I'd tried to argue with him? That would have been terrible for my own discipleship, but also for our growth and our movement as a church. And in the text, there are moments that we're going to highlight very briefly that are also similarly catalytic events where two men have to reckon with their different racial backgrounds. Let's go back to the text real quick. Acts chapter 10, catalytic event number one is in 1025. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him, falling at his feet, worshipped him. This is a huge no-no. If you are a Jew... And someone comes up to you and starts worshiping you, you, you get away from that like it's raw sewage. You don't want to touch that. Why? Because every Jew knew, Deuteronomy 6, you shall have no other God before me. The Lord our God is one. So this would have been so offensive to Peter to watch this Gentile worship him. And yet, and yet, Peter heard that vision from the Lord. Three times the Lord told him, don't treat Gentiles like that. Don't tell me they're unclean. I'm welcoming them into my community. Will you? His heart is different because his obedience to the vision that God gave him. Similarly, later on in the chapter, uh, there are two other, I would call kind of minor catalytic events, when Peter welcomes Gentile soldiers into his house, and then when he goes into Cornelius' house. Huge, huge no-nos in the Jewish religion. He would never have done that. A cultural rule does not prevent him from obeying the gospel. A cultural rule did not prevent Peter from obeying the gospel because he's obedient. And he says as much in verse 28. You yourselves know, he's addressing Cornelius and his family, it is improper for a Jew to associate with or visit an outsider, but God has shown me I should not call anyone profane or unclean. I know this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm doing it. Because God has said so. Do not mistake what Peter says for moralism. Do not mistake it for Peter saying, gosh, I should be a more inclusive person. I should be a more tolerant person. I should adopt inclusive values. No, what Peter is doing in this moment is he's saying, God told me to, and I have to, and I must. Would that be our motivation as a church? Would we be motivated to lean into catalytic events, to assess what's going on in our hearts. Not because of the culture around us, but because the gospel calls us to it. Would we? Obedience will be costly. Obedience will push us. Just having this conversation as a church, I know has pushed many of us, it's pushed me. But how might we take that push a bit further? How might we say, the next time I have an interaction with my colleague who's a person of color, I'm going to listen very, very carefully to what they're saying, what's happening in my own heart. When I go to my kids' school and I have the opportunity to interact with kids of all different backgrounds, how might I really show up for that and pay attention to what God is doing? For Peter, attentiveness to this calling is costly. 
In Acts chapter 11, he gets read the riot act by a bunch of his Jewish friends for what he did with Cornelius. In Acts chapter 15, a group of leaders in the church literally have a trial to figure out what are we supposed to do about this. Obedience will be costly, and yet it leads to new life. Peter baptizes Cornelius, the soldier. See the armor? The helmet on the ground? Cornelius comes to faith in Christ. His whole family comes to faith in Christ. If this tinderbox of potential racial conflict had gone in a different direction, if they were just playing by moral rules, this would not have happened. Instead, they were obedient to the gospel. Cornelius was hungry for the gospel. Peter needed to hear God tell him, you need to talk to this man about me. You need to go to him. You need to be receptive to him. Would we, would you, would I, if God calls us into an encounter with someone who is other, would we? And would we do it in such a way that honors Christ? I would hope so. Maybe you're thinking of a catalytic event that you've had in your life. If you have, thanks be to God, may you steward that story well, and if you feel like you can and you should, I would encourage you to share it in just a moment as we turn to a discussion time. If you're new with us, we usually spend a couple of minutes after the sermon just talking to each other and processing a little bit of what we've heard. If you're new, new, feel like you can come into these groups and just listen. I know it can be intimidating to talk to strangers about a sermon you just heard from a guy you don't know, So just know that you can come into these groups and and treat yourself gently. If you've had a catalytic event, please share it. If you've not, don't feel guilty. Don't beat yourself up. It's okay. There are different ways to walk into these conversations. And as a church, we want to be receptive to where people are at with this. The discussion questions I would encourage you to consider as we turn to our groups is share your name and one thing you're looking forward to in the fall, kind of a warm-up question. And then the second part could either be sharing a catalytic event that you know you had or a thought about obedience. Obedience is essential to transformation. It's essential to Peter's transformation. It's essential to Cornelius' transformation. I think we've made that case today. How might Jesus be nudging you or our community toward greater obedience to the gospel? As you've been sitting here listening, has he been kind of poking you? Has there been a bit of a Holy Spirit moment in your mind where someone comes to your mind where you go, oof, I need to talk to that person. I need to be more obedient to what God's doing in my life. I would encourage you to reflect on these two questions together. We'll have about 10 minutes to have this conversation and then we'll gather back together. So let me pray for us and then we'll make our transition. Gracious God, thank you for this word. I pray that it was your word, not my word. I pray that it was your heart that came through. I ask that each person in this room, grown-ups and kids, would have the chance to meet with you now, to talk, to grow our understanding of how you're at work in the world. Lord, help us. We really need you. We're lost without you. Guide us now as we speak to one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.